I want to invite you to take your Bible and open it to Genesis chapter 50. This morning we're going to begin a new series rooted in the story of, uh, of the life of Joseph that we find in the, the latter part of the book of Genesis. But this morning we're going to begin at the end and then go back and walk through from the beginning. And uh, because we want to begin with the phrase that Joseph reminds his brothers with in the latter part of this narrative in Genesis chapter 50. And so the, the series is called, But God Meant It for Good. And how we approach suffering in the view of God's sovereignty. And when I began thinking through this series several months ago and praying through it and doing the, the work for it, I did not realize when we came to this day that there would be wildfires raging in the western part of our nation. And that on this day that much of eastern Kentucky would be dealing with disastrous flooding. Both of those situations where lives have been altered the death toll continues to rise in Kentucky. But I did know that when we would come to this day that many of us would be dealing with some sort of personal trial or suffering because it is part of the common state of living in a fallen world that we are not devoid of or absent from dealing with trial because I knew that in preparation for this series that, that I have friends who are dealing with life-altering illness. Families who are dealing with fracture. Trial of some kind and so while I did not recognize or 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 have foreknowledge of the of the larger things that were going on would be going on on this day I do know that on the very personal level we deal with trial and so how then do we come to a, a biblical understanding of suffering and trial difficulty well we go to the scripture and, and this is a good place for us to begin because there are some principles that we see in the life of Joseph that are, that are true, that we can glean from the Scripture. And when we handle narrative parts of the Bible, parts of the Scripture that tell us the story of God's redemptive work from Genesis all the way to the end of the book, the part that tell God's story, we, we often approach the Scripture looking for the imperative. We want the command that says, do this, don't do that. Give me some sort of instruction. Give me some sort of to-do list. But when we come to the narrative parts, we, we've got to work a little harder because the narrative parts sometimes do give us an imperative, but more clearly they put on grand display the character of God that help us create a biblical worldview and biblical framework and having a biblical understanding of trial and suffering fits under that. So what we want to do this morning is to create some pillars, if you will, that we can create a foundation for us to go back and look through the life of Joseph 
and see the trials that he went through through the grid of this truth that while others meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so look in Genesis chapter 50. I want to begin in verse 15 as we read through the rest of the chapter, but I want to give you just a little bit of of the context of the first 14 verses because uh, around the, the latter part of the Genesis 30s, Uh, Joseph, through some effort not of his own, ends up uh, stripped and thrown into a hole and then sold into slavery by his brothers and then he gets uh, processed into Potiphar's house and then he's doing well for a while and then gets accused of something and then he ends up in prison and he's doing okay in prison and then he gets forgotten by a couple more people and through a process of some dream interpretation he becomes second in command of of Egypt. Now, that happens in a lot longer time than it took me to say it. But we start with him being acted upon by his brothers and being thrown into a hole to being second in command in Egypt and saving his family. And in the latter part of chapter 49, beginning in chapter 50, Joseph's father has died and he's given Joseph and his brothers very specific instructions that are explained and lived out through the first 14 verses of chapter 50 about what's to happen to him after he dies and where he's to be buried. And so in a desire to be obedient and to honor his father's wishes, Joseph and his brothers in this enormous caravan of people go from Egypt to where uh, Jacob wants to be buried and they bury him there and then they come back to Egypt. And in verse 15, the brothers, I think, concoct a plan. Because if you remember, all of this started because they hated their brother to the point that they wanted to get rid of him and so they threw him in a hole. And then Reuben, we think, has a soft spot for Joseph. Not really. He's really trying to get back into his father's well wishes because he's done some pretty horrible things that got him sort of on the outs with his dad. So he decides to save the favored son and and then maybe concoct a plan later on about how this might work in their benefit. They did some pretty awful things to him and they come to realize that he may just still be thinking about those things. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? I think that's a reasonable question. Except five chapters before, he saved their lives and wept because he was restored unto them. But they thought, you know, well, maybe now that our dad's passed on, maybe he'll have a change of heart. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died. Now, in verse 16, we've got no record of that charge. The scholars debate whether or not there was a charge that was given that we don't have record of, or if the brothers just thought, let's, you know, we've already, we're pretty good at lying, let's lie again. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, God didn't just mean it for good for Joseph or for Joseph's family, but Joseph's family being preserved as part of God being faithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, where he's going to call Abraham to be a great nation, a father of multitudes. And in his lineage, we find here where God is not only preserving Joseph and his family, God is preserving his covenant with Abraham in order to fulfill it, because we're going to see what happens in a couple, well, just two chapters later and as we begin in the book of Exodus. So God in his faithfulness works through these terrible trials that Joseph has to endure to bring about what they meant for evil, God meant for good. So I want us to look at some principles that we can glean from this narrative, and as we'll examine more thoroughly through the next four weeks, some principles that we can see from these narrative passages about suffering and trial and God's good work in them. And the first thing that I want us to see is that not all suffering is punitive, but all suffering is purposeful. Not all suffering is punitive, but all suffering is purposeful. Now, why would we start there? Because very often that's the first question that people ask when trial happens. We assume that God must be getting us for something that we've done. And so we say, what did I do to deserve what? This. Nobody ever wants somebody to pull out a pen and it's like, all right, well, let's make a list. What did you do? Why don't you tell me what you did? Let's see if God's work equals what you think that was wrong. Nobody wants to do that. But we assume by the question that God must be getting me for something that I did or thought or said or didn't do or didn't say or something. I did this, therefore suffering had to happen. It doesn't seem to be the case in Joseph's life. It doesn't seem to be the case in Job's life. Job's living righteously before God and the adversary comes to God and says, uh, God says, where have you been? He said, I've been walking to and fro on the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? God's the one that brought Job into the conversation. Not Job's disobedience, not Job's rebellion. Job's righteousness brought him into the conversation. And his friends who came to comfort him were doing wonderfully well until they started talking. They came and they just sat with him for a while. It's the ministry of presence. That's a really good thing to practice. But then came the questions, Job, what did you really do? You, you can tell me, what did you really do? It's the assumed punitive nature of suffering. And to be honest, sometimes suffering does come as the result of our own sinful behavior. There are natural consequences that happen when sin occurs. We can go illustration after illustration about that. Sometimes, as in the case of Joseph, suffering comes because of the sinful behavior of others. 
brothers just recognized we did wrong to him. We sinned against him. And while even though they meant it for evil, God in his sovereignty was still working in their evil action to bring about his good. So suffering sometimes does come because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes it comes by our own actions. Sometimes suffering comes as a result of other people's sinful behavior. Sometimes suffering comes because of other people's inactivity. We're going to see that in Joseph's life when he's in prison and the baker and the cupbearer both say, we'll remember you, and then they neither one do, and so he spends more time in prison. We can't have the one-size-fits-all approach to every difficulty that we find in life. But yet emotively or mentally, that's very often how we approach it. If something bad happens, God must be mad at me. It's not the case. So not all suffering is punitive, but all is purposeful. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We can go through illustration after illustration throughout the Scripture and see ways that God worked in and through people's suffering. Purpose. Here, it's not merely some sort of personal expression of purpose for Joseph, but rather it's not only to preserve his immediate family, but also the lineage that will eventually come and bring the Messiah. So there is purpose. And in the midst of God working this purpose, God will sustain his people through their suffering. God will sustain his people through their suffering. We're going to see over the next several weeks, God directly engaged in the life of Joseph. In chapter 39, where Joseph's in Potiphar's house, in verse two it says, and the Lord was with him. While he's serving as a, as a slave, God's not abandoned him, God's with him. God gives him favor. When he ends up being falsely accused and ends up in prison, God is still with him. God gives him favor. We're going to see the active engagement of God throughout Joseph's life. And in none of those places does he immediately remove him from the difficulty in which he finds himself. So God's presence doesn't necessarily mean immediate rescue from circumstances, but rather it means that God is actively engaged in the midst of our circumstances. And so as we think through this process of how God is present and God is at work in and through the circumstances where we may endure suffering and trial, we can see that these truths are parallel truths that suffering exists and God is sovereign because suffering exists under God's sovereignty, but God's sovereignty is not threatened by our suffering. It's not that those two things are in direct opposition to one another. They, they coincide together. God is sovereign and suffering happens. If we allow our perception of God to be shaped by our emotional response to difficulty, then we will have a very shifty God. But if we let the scripture tell us who God is, and in that truth, we approach suffering from the perspective of who God is, then that brings a certain security to us of resting in the character and the person and the nature of God and dealing with circumstances through those realities.
Paul writes quite a bit about trial and suffering and sovereignty. And so I want us to go and, and look at a couple of things that Paul writes. So keep your place there in Genesis chapter 50 and look over in Colossians chapter 1. Whenever someone asks me what my favorite chapter of the Bible is or my favorite part, uh, it usually depends on what I'm studying at the time. But Colossians 1 is one of those places that I just love to go and, and hang out in. Because in the middle of Colossians 1, Paul just loses himself in describing Jesus. And in the middle of this text, Paul grandly and clearly declares the sovereignty of God. In describing Jesus in verse 13 of Colossians 1, he says, Paul writes, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, For by him all things were created. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God. Before the beginning began, God. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. The earth sits on the proper axis because it was made by him, for him, and in him all things hold together. Sovereignty. And in God's sovereignty, suffering exists, but that suffering does not threaten God's position as sovereign. Because in our suffering and under his sovereignty, God is present and his grace is sufficient. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes about God being the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all of our afflictions. So that we may comfort others with the comfort that we have received. And that, that while our sufferings are abundant in Christ, as is our comfort abundant in him. Five things about comfort in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about his own physical trial. He writes about the fact that he's, he's had this spiritual uh, engagement and, and it might cause him to be uh, haughty to others. And so God uh, gave him this infirmity, a messenger of Satan, he called it, a thorn in his flesh to keep him from exalting himself. And Paul writes, three times I asked God to remove it. And every time he said, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Look in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Because he doesn't just write of the reality that God's grace is sufficient. In verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. 
Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul wanted God to remove it, and God said, no. But my grace is sufficient for you. God said, no. And Paul said, there's purpose in it. I wanted to be relieved of it. I, I love Paul's authenticity. I, if, if I have a choice between trial and ease, I'll take ease every time. I'd much rather have ease. But Paul says there's purpose in his trial. There's purpose in his difficulty. Because Christ's power is perfected in weakness. Because God's grace is sufficient. Which leads us to this conclusion that also ultimately suffering is beneficial. That ought to fall oddly to our ear. That ought to sound about a bit counterintuitive. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I mean, it's suffering. It's not, we recognize what it is. But it's beneficial. Joseph says there's purpose. Paul says there's purpose. You knew if we started in Genesis and started talking about suffering, we went to the New Testament, we'd end in James. James chapter 1. James writing to those who are being dispersed, to those who are actively enduring persecution for the sake of the gospel. He says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing there's confident assurance, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result in you, that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, it's not talking about moral perfection. It's talking about perfection, not lacking anything, that through trial and suffering, we can consider it joy, not that we are enduring it, but that God is purposeful in it. Because we've all heard the testimony of people on the backside of trial. I see where God was faithful here. And I see where God was faithful here. And I see how God made me more like Jesus here. And I see what God was doing here. And when we're in the midst of it, it's super tough to see those things. Because the trial screams so loudly. And if we're not careful... We let that loud volume of context and circumstance shift our understanding of who God is instead of putting the truth of who God is on top of that circumstance. And I'm not inviting us to pretend like it's not real, pretend like it's not painful, or to pretend like it's not difficult. It is what it is. But in the midst of it, we can have hope that God is at work, that he has not abandoned us, that God is sovereign and he has not moved off of his sovereignty by our circumstances. I've often heard people say that they think James is harsh. I think James is hopeful. In the midst of enduring trial, be joyful that God is at work. 
But we also have the benefit of being part of a church family. When Paul writes what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 about the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may comfort others who need to be comforted. When we encounter trial as part of a church family, we can almost be assured every time there's someone in our church family who has endured something very much like it and who has experienced the comfort of God who can come alongside and give empathy in a way that others may not. The New Testament tells us to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We could go back through and look at all the love one another's, love one another's, love one another's, love one another's. We are not called to suffer in isolation. It's that we bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Jesus because of the commonality of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes in the gospel of Jesus which is what we celebrate when we share communion together. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. And David's going to come and lead us through our time of communion together. Because as we come to the table this morning, the great probability is that some of us are coming with heavy hearts. Some of us may be coming with burdens that seem too difficult to bear. And certainly burdens that seem too difficult to bear alone. But rest in the certain assurance that God is present and He is at work. And one of the gifts of that very present God is that you have a church family who loves you. Because of the good news of the gospel that we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table.